This story is part of a larger one of indigenous people working or attempting to work at and for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago during a time of rapid change in America and in tribal communities. In conjunction with the 1893 fair in Chicago, Frederick Jackson Turner famously declared that the frontier had closed. Arguments regarding the accuracy of his declaration aside, the seminal change it represented was an outcome of the American expansion from a small nation hugging the Atlanta seaboard to a transcontinental one on the cusp of becoming the greatest world power. This project was achieved by the dispossession of the land's original inhabitants of the bulk of their real estate and resources. This ushered in an abrupt new era of history for Native Americans who suddenly found themselves impoverished with their populations and communities decimated. By the late 19th century, American Indian economies across the continent and indeed across the Americas had been largely destroyed by a combination of imperial expansion and colonial and federal governmental policies. Indian communities were under severe assault on a number of fronts, economic, political, religious, and social among them. As a result of these rapid transformations, Americans viewed Native peoples as the last remnants of a dying race. Native peoples still viewed America as their home and sought new ways to survive in it. The 1893 World's Fair provides an opportunity to view the ways in which American Indians and other Native peoples were beginning or hoping to adapt to the changes and challenges they faced at the dawn of the 20th century. In this climate, indigenous people in North America sought new ways to make a living. Many recognized that participating in the cash economy was the only way out of dependency. Some participated from home, making and selling objects for the fair or guiding the collectors who scoured Indian country looking for objects to display. Others became entertainers. This paper is part of a book project in which I'm exploring the roles of indigenous people, for the most part from the Americas, in utilizing the 1893 fair as a means to participate in the U.S. cash economy. Dozens of native communities contributed artifacts and display items for the anthropological display at the fair. Hundreds of native people came to Chicago to work at the fair, either paid or unpaid as part of the anthropological village or employed by entrepreneurs, men, women, and children. Aside from the boarding school children who came, the largest contingent was a group of 74 Pine Ridge Lakota people who came under contract to Buffalo Bill, whose Wild West show was located just outside of the fairgrounds. He'd been denied a spot at the fair itself. Smaller groups of Iroquois, Penobscot, Navajo, Lakota, Ojibwe, Ho-Chunk, Native Hawaiians, and others all came to work in Chicago that summer. Aside from school children, few Montana Indians actually made it to the fair, but many had hoped to. The United States government, through the Office of Indian Affairs, had at first planned to oversee all of the exhibits involving American Indians at the fair. But their budget was too meager, and the Commissioner of Indian Affairs early on made a deal with Frederick Ward Putnam, an anthropologist from Harvard University's Peabody Museum. The government would sponsor an Indian boarding school, and Putnam would make an anthropological exhibit. The two were meant to contrast each other, the school showing how the government was modernizing Indians, 
and Putnam's exhibit showing Indians in their pre-contact conditions. Indians who participated in Putnam's exhibit had other ideas, of course. In addition, Putnam was initially put in charge of other exhibits, including entrepreneurial exhibits that would bring Indians to the fair. This proved beyond his capabilities, and, and this project was turned over to Saul Bloom, who organized the Midway Plaisance, a broad avenue of curiosities. But Putnam still had the authority to approve or disapprove of any proposed exhibits involving American Indians and other indigenous people. Putnam sent collectors to reservation communities beginning in 1891, and the Smithsonian Institution did as well. Some of the objects collected by the Smithsonian came from individuals working in Indian country and not from agents sent into the field. A Pagan black steer robe painted with tribal history and purchased from the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana is an example of this. Z.T. Daniel, described as an old collector, bought it from the artist, a Pagan man named Sharp, and sold it to the museum for $12. He included a written version of the story that was portrayed on the hide. He was urged by his uh, supervisor to please buy the robe for the World's Fair. These things are getting scarce and this is very cheap. The Pagan were desperate that winter. They lost 10% of their cattle with the harsh weather uh, that lasted from November through May. Uh, and so Sharp needed that money to help feed his family. The Canadian government also spent money for its own display, some to make purchases from Black, the Blackfeet relatives on the Blackfoot Reserve in what is now southern Alberta that same winter. The Canadians purchased the porcupine quill dress that appears to have been made by Red Crow's wife. The dress must have necessitated an extraordinary amount of work. The price was $50.50. Other objects cost far less. Um, and the Blackfeet were asked to supply drums, shields, and a lodge. The Blackfoot were asked to supply drums, shields, and a lodge for the Canadian exhibit. It's unclear what type of hides were used to make the lodge, but they were tanned by the best tanners in the tribe at cut rate prices. The tanners received $2 per hide, tanned on both sides, while the normal price was three and a quarter for tanning on one side. The local agent bragged to the Canadian government, there are only a few Indians here who understand tanning skill, and it takes about a week to tan one hide, so we only pay them 35 cents a day. Uh, this agent acquired the lodge poles for the lodge that was sent free, instead of the usual 4 to $5 cost. He did so as part of a deal he made with tribal members to go into the mountains to cut wood for their own needs. The lodge was built by Chief Old Son's wife, the most skillful uh, person in the community at this task, for somewhere between seven and eleven dollars. As they say, the agent said, she is the best. The skins cost two dollars each, and she earned the money. It was eventually shipped to Chicago later than the other goods, since Mrs. Old Son tried but was unable to paint it properly until after the extreme freezing weather in February finally broke. Um, Crowfoot's daughter also made a porcupine quill dress for the Canadian exhibit. The Blackfoot who made these items for the exposition were underpaid, but probably desperate enough that any work and income kept starvation at bay. The previous summer, their root crops had almost entirely failed. They had little control over the price for their labor and few resources to support their families. There was as yet little competition for the purchase of their goods. 
The agricultural policy of the Canadian government was failing them. The bison had long disappeared, and the stubborn federal policy focused on the unsuccessful farming, so any cash would have helped. Unfortunately, they had to sell what they made at low prices in order to make the sale at all. In May of 1892, the Smithsonian sent Walter James Hoffman West to collect from the Crow in Montana and tribes in the Dakotas as well with a budget of $1,500 for six weeks. In June, he spent more than $420 on direct purchases from Crow and Chippewa tribal members. He seems to have visited the Crow Reservation early in June, where he spent $392.25 on direct purchases that went right into tribal members' pockets. And then he returned back east at the end of June. His purchases at Crow varied from 25 cents spent on various objects, including a pair of children's moccasins and a horse whip, to $90 for chief's war garments, quote, a suit consisting of buckskin fringed with ermine, one pair of fur beaded trimmed leggings, pouch, knife, sheath, unquote. He also spent $20 on a fully beaded youth's coat, $12 on a woman's saddle that was covered in beaded buckskin, and $15 on beaded war leggings. He purchased clothing, ornamentation, tools, and decorative and utilitarian objects of everyday usage. All of these objects were purchased for display at the fair and eventually accessioned into the Smithsonian's collections where they remain today. There were also proposals to bring Indians from Montana to the fair. Frank Miles, a rancher from Demersville, Montana, had one such plan and he had Putnam's enthusiastic support. He proposed to work with two mixed-blood individuals from the Flathead Reservation, Charles Allard and Michelle Pablo, to bring their bison to the fair along with several families of Indians who would oversee the exhibit. The Flathead Reservation was home to the Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay tribes, the last Salish holdouts who had lived in the homes in the Bitterroot Valley, in their homes in the Bitterroot Valley, had just been forcibly removed to the reservation in 1891 from right down here. This occurred just two years after Montana gained statehood. The Salish had established a viable herd of bison that were later incorporated into the National Bison Range, as many of you know. Miles and Allard must have met in January 1892 or before to discuss this proposed exhibit. In early February, Miles wrote to Allard that he had met with fair officials to broach the subject of the bison exhibit. Miles then wrote to Commissioner of Indian Affairs Morgan, uh, Thomas Jefferson Morgan, seeking permission to bring Allard's and Pablo's bison along with 10 to 12 lodges of Indians belonging to the Flathead or Kootenai tribes. Morgan responded that he did not object but that fewer Indians would be needed since the focus of the exhibit was to be bison. He added that if uh, Putnam, the anthropologist, wished to have flathead Indians in his exhibit, the Office of Indian Affairs would help to facilitate it. In March, Miles wrote to Putnam asking whether or not, quote, I can have the use of these Indians, <laughs> He pointed out that since the bison were near extinction, there were very few people who could handle them. Miles wrote, quote, the owner of these buffalo, being a half-breed, will not consent to my employing any inexperienced white men to handle them, Unquote. He also argued that he needed to bring the Indians as families, since the men could not be away from their families for that long without problems arising. Peter Ronan, the agent at the Flathead Agency, supported the idea of Allard and Pablo leading the exhibit. 
He wrote to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in March 1892, well, in my opinion, if this matter will be carried out and receive your attention, it will successfully show to the world that men of Indian blood are not only capable of raising a herd of buffaloes, but are as capable of handling them on the grounds of the World's Fair as on their native plains. It will also show that they are as capable of their own business management as if under the management of the writer of the attached letter or any other management. Morgan responded that Putnam had the ultimate decision-making authority. Putnam approved. He advised Miles that the Indians should wear their native clothing and live in their native habitations. Quote, the fact of their herding the buffalo would not interfere with their being seen and studied as Native Americans. Putnam's whole focus on his exhibit was to present Indians as they were before the white man came. And he just wrote over and over and over again that that was the only way he would permit Indians to come to the fair. Morgan then told Ronan, Professor Putnam and I both agree with you that if it is practicable, it is better that the entire exhibit should be planned and carried out by persons of Indian blood. He then warned of the difficulties of carrying out such a complex proposition from a business perspective. Allard and Pablo would need to, quote, think it out in all its details and be perfectly sure of what they are going to do and what it will cost, and whether they have sufficient capital to undertake such an entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial enterprise without the risk of bankruptcy. They would need to be astute in considering costs, such as leasing concession space, employing people in various roles, and transportation to and from Montana by rail. Morgan also informed Ronan that, per Putnam's instructions, the Indians should be prepared to wear their native costumes and live in, quote, their native habitations, so that those who attend the exhibition of the animals may see as nearly as possible a transcript of life in the Indian country as it used to exist in the days of buffalo hunting." Unquote. These two directives, that Indians must work as modern businessmen, and that they must portray themselves as part of a bygone era, define the dilemma that Indians faced in the late 19th century. On the one hand, they were considered to be part of a rapidly fading past in American history, and at the same time, they needed the skills to effectively participate in present-day society. They needed to address both aspects of outsiders' perceptions of them in order to succeed. Many became skilled at the chameleon-like adaptation necessary to do so, but in other cases, the two contradictory demands proved overwhelming. By May, Putnam was worried that Miles' plan would lead to the fair's endorsement of a, quote, Wild West show before we know it, unquote. He very strongly opposed the Wild West shows, which is why uh, Buffalo Bill had to set up his camp outside of the fairgrounds. Putnam also warned Miles that the exhibit should be, quote, in no way degrading to the Indian nor savor of the Wild West show character, unquote. Miles, by this time, had changed plans to include about a hundred Indians from a broader variety of backgrounds and to create more of an extravaganza. A newspaper article in the Kalispell Interlake seems to bear out Putnam's concern. It reported that Flathead, Kootenai, Ponderay, Blackfeet, and Nez Perce would all participate, surrounded by deer, buffalo, and prairie dogs. The article continued, quote, The war dance and messiah craze will not be forgotten and will be an important feature. 
They will not be half-breeds or squaw men, but genuine thoroughbred redskins of the woods that have participated in the war dance when it meant blood and lots of it. In addition, deer would be sent live to the fairgrounds where the tribal members would slaughter them and then tan the hides and use them to make items for sale. Putnam told Miles in no uncertain terms that neither war dances, which, quote, would tend to impress the public with the idea of wild savagery in connection with the Indians, unquote, nor killing and processing of deer would be permitted in Chicago. In October 1892, the Assistant Commissioner of Indian Affairs approved Miles' plan to bring Flathead, Blackfeet, Ponderay, Kootenai, and Nez Perce people as part of his exhibit. The only requirement was that the Indian agents at the various agencies would review the names of individuals Miles would bring to determine whether they were proper persons to be allowed to go to Chicago. Uh, there was very strict control of Indians leaving reservations in the late 19th and early 20th century. Indian agents could decide whether people were permitted, given passes, to leave their homes. The next April, just week before, weeks before the fair opened, Putnam reported that Miles' exhibit was a go and that in return for my endorsement of it, he said, I am promised of the loan to this department from day to day of families of the following tribes in the outer door section, Flathead, Blackfeet, Ponderay, Nez Perce, and Kootenai. Unquote. Miles now called his exhibition uh, the Miles Montana Buffalo and Indian Company. As was the case for other tribal groups across the country, however, Miles' plans fell apart in the end, and this exhibit never made it to Chicago. Even after the fair opened, Allard, who was described as having 100 buffaloes on the Blackfeet Reservation, which, and with, and which was described as, I mean, on the Flathead Reservation, which was described as the only live herd of such magnitude in the world, was, quote, thinking seriously of bringing them to Chicago to be exhibited during the World's Fair, unquote. In May of 1893, after the fair opened, the New York Times provided clues as to why Miles was unable to pull his plan together. It intimated that Buffalo Bill opposed Miles on the basis of competition. It reported that Putnam had, quote, made arrangements with a Montana man to furnish him with a choice assortment of Northwest Indians including Sioux, Blackfeet, Crow, Ponderay, etc. This was three months ago, and the Indians were advertised to be shown. Nothing, however, has been heard of the Montana gentleman since it was learned that he and Major Burke, Buffalo Bill's partner, had locked horns, the latter threatening a damage suit. The Montana man's prolonged silence is construed as evidence that some enterprising competitor has absorbed the stock of his company, which he was trying to float although Colonel Cody and Mr. Burke assert that deed and double deed they know nothing about. Mr. Putnam, however, entertains strong suspicions, especially since the Wild West combination offers to lend him Indians, out of which gift, it is safe to say, they will take the incidental advertising as a return of the favor. Unquote. Perhaps Miles was bought out by Cody and Burke in order to keep him from bringing a sanctioned popular exhibit that would rival their Wild West show. Unfortunately for the tribal members who had hoped to participate, the politics of big business kept them from doing so. The Crow Indian tribe of southeastern Montana also hoped to participate in the fair. They worked through a contract in contractor in Chicago, P.B. Ware, 
try to secure a place at the fair. In June of 1893, he wrote, their own idea would be to send a sufficient number of their men and families to represent them that would make a fair representation of their people, say five lodges or families. They want to get up new lodges and native dresses, which will take considerable time to do it. Ware described the Crow as among the very best of North American Indians, both as to intelligence and physique, and anxious to be represented in a creditable manner to themselves and their friends. Despite the fact that the Crow had many good farmers amongst them, and are all owners of good horses, he wrote, which made their lifestyle too modern for his purposes, uh, Putnam supported the idea. Putnam called Ware's suggestion entirely in, in accordance with the plans which I am developing. He indicated that he still did not know which tribes he would sponsor, but in the end, the Crow tribe was not one of them. The plan was doomed probably because their proposal was not pre-Columbian in nature, and so separate funding would have been necessary to bring them to the fair. Since this was not a commercial exhibit, it would require funding from Congress or the Office of Indian Affairs, both of which were approaching their finances frugally. These groups of people were among a large number who did not participate in the fair, but hoped to, even, even had made plans to. For example, in Canada, a, an official of the Canadian government uh, reported in a document in December 1892 that Putnam had set aside space on the lagoon in Chicago sufficient to accommodate three lodges of Canadian Indians from the Northwest belonging to tribes not represented in the United States. The Northwest Territory Indian Commissioner was assigned to provide the families of Indians with their equipment representing their, quote, wild condition. In response to this, the Blackfoot of Alberta, Canada, held a council meeting in April of 1893 and told their agent that they, quote, understood that a family was to be sent to represent the Northwest Indians at the World's Fair, unquote. They asked their agent uh, to select a family from the Blackfoot tribe. In the end, the Canadian government failed to sponsor this exhibit, and so here was another group of Native people with relatives in Montana who didn't make it to the fair. Interestingly, Indian children from Montana are recorded as coming to the fair. They came with the Carlisle Indian School. They were not part of the government's boarding school exhibit, but came for a week to drill and parade. The children actually paid their own way to come to the fair with Carlisle School and worked on the fairgrounds for their admission. Several Pagan boys from the Blackfeet Reservation, in addition to Crow, Assiniboine, and Grovant boys from Montana, were part of the Carlisle contingent. The 1893 World's Fair provided many Native people with financial opportunities that they desperately needed in order to cope with the changing times and their broken economies. Numerous Montana Indians almost had the chance to go there and participate. Only the school children made it, and they paid their own way to get there. For the others, it was an opportunity missed. <laughs>